drive at night. The police radio is my compass. Looking for answers to questions I'm only learning how to ask. About things adults dismiss. But children are right to fear. Shapes that lurk in the darkness. Nightmares that intrude from another realm. Forces that spring not from the imagination, but live amongst us, unseen. These forces have taken something from me. Something I can never recover. So I stalk the night, looking and knowing. Our fear of the dark never really goes away. We just learn to pretend it's not there. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak, not the Carl Kolchak that uh, we've known to uh, grow to love over the last few episodes of the Kolchak tapes, but an heir to the throne, uh, possibly an imposter. That is Carl Kolchak being played by Stuart Townsend in the 2005 reimagining of the Kolchak series from creator Frank Spotnitz, who you will be hearing from later in the show. Night Stalker 2005. Uh, this is the pilot episode that we were talking about, which uh, oddly, the script for this one, Chris, it's uh, 55 pages. The pilot itself is 44 minutes, and uh, it could actually use some uh, some more to it, like actually seeing the creatures. How dare you? How dare you say such things? How dare you want to see the monsters? How dare you? Yeah, I'm your co-host, and I'm astounded at uh, some of the choices. My kind of takeaway from the whole not showing the monsters was low budget, right? That's kind of why couple things just to start out with. We've had this kind of running joke at the beginning of every Kolchak tapes where I always go Kolchak or Kolshak. In the first five minutes of this, they say both of them. And by they, I mean Carl Kolshak, played by Stuart Townsend, says it both ways, which you would hope if you're the lead, you would say it one way and not the other every time. And I, I mean, it wouldn't have stuck out to me if I had been watching this six months ago, but you know, now having essentially made that joke every podcast, now I'm like, oh shit, they don't even know what to say. And then they make a Horshack joke, which is, I was like, wow. Well. I did like the Horshack joke. Yeah, so did I. The Horshack joke was pretty great. But it was just, it just kind of stuck out to me like a sore thumb that they were like, well, what do we call him? We'll have Kolshak call himself just one thing. This came out September 29th, 2005. Coincidentally, I think it was the same year that Supernatural started. It feels very much like Supernatural. Before we started recording, I essentially said to you that this is Supernatural because it is. I mean, this really feels like Supernatural to me because, I mean, the the whole end of the episode where they're in like the caverns, it didn't feel anything like what I was expecting from Kolshak, but it felt like the finale of a Supernatural episode down to the point where they're driving around and the car plays into how they get away and like how they kill the monster. Like I was just like, these are all the fingerprints that I would expect from an episode of Supernatural but instead, it's Kolchak, Kolchak. I'm just going to call this one Kolchak. Since we call the other one Kolchak, I'm going to call this one Kolchak because it's Kolchak, but not all the way right. there. Yeah, I'd say if, if Kolchak is a 1 to 10 scale, we're talking about maybe a 7 or an 8. He's He's not all the way there. And that's not to say that Stuart Townsend is bad. Because I actually like Stuart Townsend. He seems a 
tad disinterested and there's not enough of the snark that I have come to expect from the Kolchak character. And that's fine, frankly, because this is a completely different version of that character. But it's I would have liked a tad more snark. Townsend seems to play kind of the same character in everything that he's in, whether he is there with uh, Aliyah in Queen of the Damned or he's got uh, the funny looking facial hair in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. He just always seems to be the same dude to me. And it's not just the look. It's also the chops to me. He just doesn't seem to have the chops to to pull this off as much. And yeah, like he's he's the laconic Kolchak. He's not the snarky one. He's not making the quips and stuff. And he he's well, he's a damaged man. I think that's the the biggest thing that comes out of this is that we find out that this Carl Kolchak is not the he's the the ace reporter, but he is you know the one thing that we've talked about with Kolchak in the past is that he, he you know he, he he loves him and leaves him in every single episode of of Kolchak and uh, this one no he was in love and his wife uh, was tragically murdered and it plays into now his quest to kind of uncover the supernatural and figure out what's going on with this whole uh, mark on the wrist thing that's going on where we get to see at the very end of the episode that he also has that mark. Well, and that's the other thing that really comes into play here that I wanted and want from the original show is that there is no overarching mythology. And this show from the get go kicks off with overarching mythology. And I wouldn't say that it took me in immediately, but it was definitely refreshing to see Kolshak with a, mythology even if it's not the original one but it's interesting to see that kind of different dynamic and different kind of angle to the character versus just he's a reporter doing reporter things so that that's kind of that's kind of novel i i like that i like that a little bit more than say if they had just gone the straight kind of reboot monster of the week route there's clearly like an underlying mythology that they're going to get to eventually or attempt to get to. And unfortunately the show was kind of summarily cut down. I mean, they're at least trying and I really applaud them for that. But then again, this is, you know, 2005. So shows already have mythologies. And I feel like if you made a show like this and didn't have a mythology, you'd kind of be behind the eight ball immediately. There's some music that plays at the beginning of this. I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think it's like Max Reinhardt or something that, that, that that comes out at the beginning and this isn't the nice stalker theme that we're going to get in the rest of these episodes that theme also piano based really reminds me of the fringe theme with fringe and uh, i don't want to turn this into the fringe cast but fringe the first season was really it felt like monster of the week 
it was only towards the end of the first season where they brought in this character who they summarily dismissed, and I don't think we ever saw her again. This character who came in and was basically tying all of the things together, like, oh, all of these things are, I don't know, based on the Book of Revelation. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of cool. It's all tied together. And then that just got trashed. And then the rest of the show just oh, it kind of became overwhelmed with the overarching story and it just became it, the monster of the week kind of went away the monsters were the b story and it was really much more the mythology for the rest of it this one is trying to mix the two i think in the right way and i think more in that supernatural way where you're finding out about the winchesters and how they play a role in the world as opposed to supernatural season six on which is just a clusterfuck i mean i had to give it up eventually because now now mike let's be honest here that show is kept alive by its fan base who just want to see the brothers have sex and if you don't agree with me then you clearly don't understand that that show has even like referenced that in the show there's sam girls and dean girls and what's a slash fan as in sam slash dean together like together together yeah they do know we're brothers, right? Doesn't seem to matter. Oh, come on. that That's just sick. It's just unabashed glee that these some of these fans take with wanting these characters to have sex with each other. It's astounding. I mean, when the show buys into it, like, you know that they're pretty cogent of the fact that this is going on. I get it, and I get why it keeps that show alive, but, man, whatever. But this show is very like the the first episode of this show is very different from everything that we've seen Kolchak wise up until this point. It's very different. The dichotomy between the characters is different. The dichotomy between Kolchak and the I'm assuming is he still Vincenzo? Do they ever say his name in that episode? I think they do say that he's Vincenzo. Yeah, so he's the new editor that he comes across. It's interesting that Kolchak isn't even the first character we're introduced to. I mean, we get a we get his voiceover and that kind of introduces us to him and he's going down to your point it's it, his muscle car is going down the freeway as he's giving this opening narration and then we go to that teaser where we have you know what we have in so many of these shows where you've got the couple home and the the guy goes away and the woman's left a, a alone at home and then something attacks her and that's when we kind of you know fade to black cut to credits kind of thing and we don't even see Kolchak after that it is Gabrielle Union and this other dude Eric Youngman it's a weird name it, not his name but his character's name of Jane McManus um, and I just I kept thinking that they were talking about her because his name is Jane and I guess I mean maybe Firefly had happened by then where I'm I should know that there are male characters named Jane but I'm like okay but her Perry Reed we hear Gabrielle Union's character named Perry Reed Perry Reed Perry Reed tons of times in this episode and we meet them before we meet Carl Kolchak, it's not until they show up at a crime scene and the deputy is like, oh, yeah, we've already given our statement to one of your reporters. And they go in and find him already on scene at the crime scene. And it is kind of weird because he skipped over going to the office and meeting anybody and doing anything and just heads right to a crime scene. Apparently, he must have gotten tipped off by that police scanner that we see in his car. 
And that's the thing, right? This almost doesn't even feel like Kolchak is the main character. It almost feels like he's a passenger in his own story. Or not even that. feels like he's a passenger in someone else's story. Yeah, this feels like it's the Perry Reed movie. And maybe that'll change in the next episode. But right now, with this episode, it's it's not nearly as bad as the rap that it gets. It's not. It's not that bad. I mean, it's a pilot episode, mind you. So take that with what you will. Pilot episodes, for the most part, are never very good. You know, the pilot episode for The X-Files is okay, not great. The pilot episode for Kolchak, and if we talk about the pilot episode, the first one, The Night Stalker, fantastic. Night Strangler, not so much. If we want to talk about The Ripper, that's a different story. Right. He's already been established, so we don't necessarily need to establish him. He's in the newsroom. He, you know, we get introduced to the people around him. We get introduced to Updike, and eventually we'll get Miss Emily and all these people, but we already know who this guy in the pork pie hat is. Right. And and ultimately, at the end of the day, it feeling like Kolchak is not part of his own story kind of stinks because you walk away from this episode feeling like you don't really have a good sense of who he is as a character. And not that you should entirely from the get go, but it's kind of unfortunate that they really kind of sideline him as a kind of bit part. Because, I mean, like even the climax, Perry Reed is getting chased by the monster. Kolchak is like not he just happens. He I mean, he doesn't happen, but he saves her. So it's it's kind of frustrating, honestly. Well, it's weird because there are times like I don't know if it's just that I'm too steeped in pop culture, but I kept thinking of Superman while I was watching this because you've got the uh, Jane McManus uh, is the photographer. So I'm thinking of uh, Jimmy Olsen the whole time. Perry Reed seems very much like a Lois Lane character. And then Kolchak, who just kind of like comes in and leaves and, you know, kind of saves the day every once in a while. I was just like, he's not necessarily Superman. He's more like a Clark Kent, I suppose. It doesn't even feel like what I was expecting it to feel like. It feels just so strange as a, I don't know. Well, there were things that kept taking me out of the story. Like the first thing that took me out of the story was when I figured out that the husband of the woman who disappears in the opening teaser, that his name is Henry Gale. So I'm immediately thinking, why is there a Wizard of Oz reference in here? And I don't know if it's just been kind of drilled into me that that's a Wizard of Oz reference that, you know, Uncle Henry was uh, Dorothy Gale's father, or sorry, uncle in Wizard of Oz. I don't know if that always was with me since, you know, I I was a, a fan of Wizard of Oz, or if that came more from me being a fan of Lost, and that was Ben Linus's alias when he was trying to ingratiate himself with the, uh, the the people on the island. So I was just, as soon as they said Henry Gale, I was like, oh, is that an alias? What's going on? Is this is there some sort of Wizard of Oz thing that's happening? So it really <laughs> took me out of it. And then it's also weird because we don't necessarily, like, we get a lot of stuff about this family, and there's the brother, Ed Medlock, and how his relationship is with Henry, and how he thinks that Henry killed his wife and all this. And at the end of the day, it means absolutely nothing. We don't care about these people at all. And it's really, it should be the little girl that we care about because we see her at the beginning and we kind of carry her through the rest of the thing. And she's the damsel in distress at the end, along with Perry Reed. 
but she's barely in the story as well. It's just, it, it's very strange how they handle some of this stuff. And I think some of that comes from some of the weird editing choices that they do. And then to your point, there's the low budgetness of this where it, it just feels like there's stuff missing, uh, such as the creatures. We just never get them. So we just get growls and stuff off screen. And then for a while, I didn't even kind of figure that there were more than one creature. I just kind of figured that there was the one and it took me a while before I was like, well, maybe there's more than one because again, you don't see anything. Yeah. The, the lack of a monster being shown on screen kind of irked me and not kind of, it really irked me because it felt when you have no monster and when you have no visible threat, it's kind of all shown in shadows. It makes this feel cheaper than it really is. It makes it feel cheap. And it also doesn't give the episode or the show to start out with. It doesn't give it any stakes. Like there's no stakes here. Like I don't know what they're what, – what the hell were they fighting? Like, it, like I li- literally have no idea right now. And that's not of my inability to comprehend what was happening. I don't think you have an idea any more than I do because they don't tell you. It's just like a monster in the dark and it looked like a coyote but that's what the fbi agent said who clearly is up to no good agent fane yeah who's up to no good clearly there's like a twinkle in his eye every time he looks at coal shack like with only six episodes none of this is gonna pay off so (laughs) that's another huge bummer here so i will tell you i do know a little bit more than you only because i read the script and in the script they come out and say the word werewolf And they are constantly talking about werewolves and to the point where when Fane and Perry end up meeting out at the side of the road, they they give an extended flashback of Kolchak and his wife, Irene out on the the highway and he hits this thing with his car and you get to see this whole thing i mean you don't get to see her death or anything but there's a whole big scene where uh, you know like uh he sees these creatures they are hideous black gums bear sharp needle-like teeth leathery hairless skin powerful black claws scraping furiously at the glass punching through it and you get all this kind of stuff. And they mention werewolves at least four or five times to the point where when Perry comes in to Kolchak's apartment and is looking around and she sees the photo of his dead wife in the, the script, there are all these pictures and drawings of historical werewolves. And there's even this whole thing about the taking of the fetus from the woman who had no, that again, doesn't necessarily pay off. There's this whole thing about when they are looking at the coyote corpse, they ask the uh, medical examiner, did the corpse have any sex organs? Because Kolchak has this theory that they take babies from women, pregnant women, because they can't have babies of their own. None of that stuff is in there. We don't get any of that stuff. So it's just, like I said, it's the script is 55 pages. It's been cut down to 44 minutes, and it's just missing all these chunks and all these the, the big chunks of stuff and also a lot of nuance where you're just like that would have added so much more to the story to get some of this stuff in there i mean there are little things that are missing like she calls like before she calls fane she calls kolchak's editor and this one it's not las vegas which was a nice nod to i liked that though i i honestly felt like this show could have been set in las vegas yeah, it's strange that it's it's set LA? in Los Angeles instead, yes. 
I, I mean, I like L.A. as a city, but honestly, for me, something like this, there's a reason the original Night Stalker was set in L.A. It's such an interesting place for things to be set because it's a city having just been to Las Vegas. It's a city that feels unlike anywhere else in the country. So, you know, what's to say that weird happenings wouldn't be taking place in Las Vegas just to begin with anyways? Yeah, in the script, he's coming out from, I think it's uh, Arizona. But I don't even know why it's Arizona and not Las Vegas. That that That's such a nice nod back to the show. And speaking of nods, holy cow, can we talk about the CGI'd in Darren McGavin when Stuart Townsend is walking around in the newsroom and Darren McGavin, I guess, is like getting something out of a bag or I, I don't know what's going on. But man, it is upsetting and just, it, it's upsetting in more of like a this felt tacked on way. And it's also super distracting because it's like it's at the, it's in the forefront of the shot. It's not like in the back a little ways. If they had pushed it back maybe into the mid ground or the far ground, it wouldn't have been as bad. But it's like in the foreground. It's like right up front. Yeah, you cannot take your eyes off of that. I mean, that that is such a car crash. It's just like, what what are you guys doing? They wanted to have Darren McGavin in there, but Darren McGavin was like very sick at the time, right? They got what they wanted, which it, yeah, it's not great. It's actually really bad in a way that, again, it just it feels cheap. Like, man, you spent money because they, they clearly had to spend money on that. They spent money on that, but they didn't spend any money on a monster. Not even like a fake rubber hand, you know? It's like the Evil Dead camera shot. It's like the Sam Raimi camera shot where it's you're, you are the monster chasing after someone. Like that's all the monster is the entire time we see him in this episode. In the Evil Dead, it's a, it's like a it's a bodiless monster on top of everything else. It is this. It's just it's bizarre. It's it's a there was a bizarre choice to put Darren McGavin in this, and it was a b- bizarre choice to not have a monster. And frankly, those two go hand in hand because they spent money on that Darren McGavin cameo i guess but they didn't spend any money on an actual monster they even changed his backstory the whole idea of that speech that vincenzo gives where he's talking about um how carl came into town came into vegas and uh, was stirring up all this trouble and managed to get this guy convicted of all this uh, all these crimes and how the day that the guy was going into court or being sentenced that Carl wasn't there. That is not in the script. What, what he says instead is that he's known Carl Kolchak as long as he's been a reporter. And, uh, he's, he even gives a time frame. He says 18 months ago, his life was as close to perfect as it could be. He was at the top of his career, could have had a job at any paper or TV station in the country, but he didn't want it. And then he talks about how he had met his wife and how he was truly happy. And then, Irene gets murdered right in front of him, and he just comes apart, starts spouting crazy stories about werewolves. He spends six months in the psych ward, but then the damage is done. No editor would even take his calls. So Vincenzo is a lifeline, and we don't necessarily – we kind of get that a little bit in that that discussion that he and Perry have, but – Nowhere near as clear as that. I don't know if that would have been ham-handed had they kept that in. But, I mean, again, Vincenzo, this Vincenzo, who we don't even necessarily 
know is being called Vincenzo. I mean, he's not a Vincenzo. He's not blowing up at any point. He's not this font of anger or anything. But, I mean, yeah, he's not even a Perry White, you know? You, you got to have something. Yeah, it was kind of strange how subdued his character was. And I guess he's just kind of giving Kolchak the benefit of the doubt is kind of what it struck me as. Which the Vincenzo in the original series doesn't really ever give Kolchak the benefit of the doubt. At least not as far as we've seen. He may in in later episodes, but he hasn't yet. And it's just it's just like, what? Why would you give him the benefit of the doubt right off the bat? Because you knew him, I guess. Okay. I don't know. It's just unfortunately with this one episode being it for the beginning of this look at this show, unlike the first hour and a half movie that we had for the original Kolshak pilot, I felt like that was a lot more fleshed out. But that's also because they gave him more time. Maybe we're kind of overanalyzing this because they didn't have enough time to really get where they wanted with the characters. Well, I have to say it's unusual that it's an, uh, a 44 minute pilot as opposed to, you know, which obviously with commercials stretches out to an hour. You would think that they would at least give him an hour and a half slot to do this. But I mean, I guess they said this is going to be an hour show. You get an hour to tell your first story. But yeah, it just seems very abbreviated. And maybe they'll fix some of the issues. I don't know if the character of Agent Fane comes back. I'm assuming he ties into the larger mythology plot that we're going to see play out over the next five episodes. But if he doesn't, he really was just kind of a dick for no reason in this episode. But I'm assuming he has some sort of larger part. I'm curious why you're saying five, six episodes, because there were ten. Are there ten? I thought there were I thought there were like I thought there were short like two that didn't air. But yeah, it was supposed to be a 12 or 13 uh, show season. You might be thinking of when they moved shit around, or they might have just played those other four on iTunes because there were there. This whole series just had so many problems with it, not just in front of the camera like we've seen, but all the behind the scenes. There were six that aired on ABC. That was it. That's what I'm. I'm a, I am only talking about I, – I know we're going to talk about everything, including the ones that were on iTunes. But I'm talking about the fact that this was only for six episodes, and then it got moved to iTunes. And they did a two-parter episode, one on iTunes, one on ABC, which is like mind-blowing. Didn't they move this to sci-fi for a little bit too? I, I mean – I don't know if they moved it, but I believe – yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> This poor show. We are burying the lead, really. We should probably play the interview with Frank Spotnet so he can kind of clarify some of these things. I mean, the whole lack of a monster, I mean, that might be the studio also saying that you can't have a monster in this, which is a bizarre choice. Yeah, and that interview with Frank Spotnitz really kind of changed my tune a little bit about this, coming back to it, because honestly, I didn't have high hopes for this, but like listening to him talk about the meddling of the studio, and when you listen to the interview, you'll hear it. It's just it's It just makes you wish and wonder what the hell we could have seen. The guy that played Fane, so he was in three episodes of Night Stalker. So of all the ones that aired, be they on iTunes, ABC, wherever, he's only in three episodes. Oddly enough, he was also in another sci-fi show, which started in 2005, which I forgot to mention before. 
Battlestar Galactica came back in 2005 as well. And Battlestar Galactica was given a hell of a lot more leeway, and it's widely considered to be some of the best couple episodes of couple seasons of science fiction television. I know that some people have a problem with, yeah, the end. It's a nice way of putting it. And John Piper Ferguson, who played Fane, was also in uh, three episodes of The X-Files. We definitely see a lot of X-Files uh, Night Stalker crossover. I mean, because we've compared characters to Mulder and Scully and that dynamic between them. The dynamic between, obviously, Perry and Kolchak is going to be very much like that. But it's it's funny how she is an unbeliever at first, but man, she comes over to the other side really, really. Yeah, well, I mean, in one episode. <laughs> I mean, there's there's not an arc here, folks. It's one episode. And that's and that's another thing that's crazy to me about this. Just looking at this first episode at face value, when you look at the original show and the reason the original show works so well the original show worked so well because Kolshak was such a interesting and charismatic character on his own. And then you have this show, which I'm assuming, unless anything changes, the Perry Reed Kolshak dynamic is going to continue for every episode. So it's kind of weird because Kolchak kind of worked by himself and was kind of like a lone gunman. Like he worked with other people, but that was by happenstance, not because he worked like not because they worked at the same place he worked at. And now it's like, well, there's another woman who works at the L.A. Beacon. So they're like teaming up. And it's like, you know, Mulder and Scully, as opposed to Mulder working with some person, a new person every episode because because they're in, you know, involved with the case in some form or fashion. Does that make sense? They're a stripper that's being hunted right. down. As opposed to like, I work with you and I'm going to be here every episode. And I'm assuming uh, Eric Youngman as Jane McManus is also going to be part of this. So it's a it's a three character dichotomy. Well, and then eventually Eugene Bird gets added into the mix yeah. as well. So it's just it's one of those things where it's it's really interesting and kind of strange that the dynamic that they go with in this show is so far from what we're used to with the original Kolchak show. Right. Yeah. The reason why we liked Kolchak is kind of immediately taken away from us, even to the point where he had more voiceover in that script. Not a whole lot more. Not not a whole lot more, but when we see them show up at the crime scene, not only – before they start to talk, before they interact with that deputy, we get more of a Kolchak voiceover talking about the paramedics and just all of the activity that happens when somebody dies and when there's an investigation that gets started. And it's like you took that away, I mean, probably for time, but also – you kind of rob this character who's known for his voice of his voice. And then unfortunately by this point in television, when you have a character who's giving a voiceover and then you see them typing at a television, at a computer, I think Carrie Bradshaw, Mm. Ah, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but man, Kolchak in the city. Is this about World War Three, or is it really about World War me? I applaud you for this connection. And now, unfortunately, that will be all I can think of from here on out. It is kind of strange that they that they bookend the episode with narration, and that's it, considering how much narration played into the original show. I mean, in the original show, there was narration like every scene or every other scene. At least with every 
deaf you got that introduction. Like when we cut from him talking to the little girl at the police station and then um, – or at the, the morgue, I should say. And then we cut and it's her uncle who's going out for whatever and you've got the, the, the aunt in the shower and the little girl's watching the Looney Tunes. I mean there should have been some – some Kolchak there was like, and he was going out for whatever. And that was the last time he would ever see his wife alive or something like that. Some of that heavy voiceover that we would get. Yeah. It, like you said, it really robs a character of his personality. And for a show that's just starting out with this being the pilot episode, you would think that they would want him to have as much personality as possible because that's what you're That's how you sell this show. You sell, you sell this show on Kolchak's personality. And he's a charismatic figure. But again, because of the way that they did it with him having this troubled past because his wife died, he's more troubled than charismatic. To go back to him and a keyboard, you don't have the the tape recorder. And that was one of Carl's other big things. I mean, you take away the camera by giving that to the photographer character because we we have a running joke of Carl not being able to take photographs the right way or or whatever you know just it, it never seems to work out and then we've got – so they take the camera away. We give it to this other character. And so he doesn't have the recorder. I guess having Perry Reed there is enough for him to do. But yet we don't get the voice of the story. I mean because he's ultimately at the end of this episode, he's the one who writes the final story and puts it out there. And interestingly, Perry Reed is the one who's like – Hey, why didn't you write the truth? And he's like, oh, who's going to believe that anyway? You know, they'll, they'll lock me up again. And it's like, okay, this isn't the Carl Kolchak that we know who's going to go out there and write the truth no matter what and then have it you know, torn apart by his copy editor. He's going to go along with the party line just so that he can eventually get his arc resolved or not. Did that bother you as much as it bothered me? The resol the resolution to this episode that like that really bugged me where it was like, well, I'm not going to write about it. Like, but that's like, that's not, that's not the character at all. And I, I don't want to say that this is uh, Frank Spotnitz is doing. He wrote this episode I don't want to say that this was his doing, but if you do that, then there is a general misunderstanding of the character as a whole, because Kolchak is the guy who goes and sits on his soapbox in the middle of Times Square yelling about aliens. And it's true. Nobody believes him because of the way he's doing it, but he does it anyways, because that's what he feels is necessary to do. He doesn't just go, well, I don't want to go to the, the nut house again, so I'm not going to say anything about it like that to me is just a complete misunderstanding of what makes the character of Kolchak so great is that he says yeah you know what fuck it I'm gonna write this story even if I think that this is crazy even if this sounds crazy even if I know that it'll be perceived as crazy I'm still gonna write it but this Kolchak just goes you know what I don't want to be seen as crazy I don't want to get locked back up right how long would I keep this job if I were to write right. that yeah the original Kolchak doesn't care about his job <laughs> at all. I mean, he's throwing shit at Vincenzo at the end of Night Strangler. I mean, he just again, just a general lackadaisical attitude towards authority that we don't we don't get that in this show either, at least not in this first episode. Yeah, I mean, that whole speech that we quoted in the first episode was like, that is news. It is our job to report the news. And in this one, it's like, eh, public doesn't need to know. Oh, they won't believe it anyways. Well, so what? Right. 
I mean, I guess that's kind of the thing. I mean, the, the we talked about in the last episode about how when he finds the uh, the 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 shoe from Jack the Ripper, how he's just like, who cares, kind of thing at the end of it. But to me, that's basically he knows he's not going to get the story in print. Right. I don't know. I'm I'm curious where that's going to go if he's going to turn into that more cynical person. But I mean, throughout the rest of the episode. He's chasing down that story. Again, it's just a very strange way of going about showing the character in a new and updated way. It's a little strange to me that they've kind of that they've shifted away from some of what I would consider to be the bigger parts of what make Col what makes Kolchak Kolchak. I mean, yeah, may, would the pork pie hat have looked a little goofy on Stuart Townsend? Maybe, but they could have made it work. Something, some sort of flourish to, I mean, he doesn't have to go all Matt Smith and wear a fucking bow tie or something, but just something. Like, you know, Doctor Who, the bow tie worked. So what's to say that a pork pie hat on a character who wore a pork pie hat in his original version wouldn't have worked? Yeah, something. Mm. I mean, at least give him a seersucker jacket or something. I haven't seen a whole lot of the show, but this a little bit reminds me of the look of this show reminds me a little bit of elementary. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, it's updated for the new times and we're going to do a lot of different stuff that you wouldn't expect. And we're going to change the look of the character a lot, but he's still going to be Sherlock Holmes. Like, okay. The problem is elementary is actually like halfway decent at like giving interesting twists on things it's no sherlock okay but the fourth season of sherlock is takes all that takes all that goodwill and just flushes it down the toilet i'll say it chris i will say what a lot of people have probably been thinking sherlock should end it after one season mo fat bro he shouldn't have ever come back from the dead he could have just jumped off that building that could have been the end of the season yeah then they couldn't have done the way that they did with the title being what it was which, if you know anything about the source material, Sherlock Holmes survives that anyways. Only because Arthur Conan Doyle brought it back because people were like, Sherlock can't die. <laughs> He's been fighting Moriarty, even though Moriarty's been dead for three seasons. And it's like, come on. I still haven't watched the last one and a half episodes, so I, I don't know if Moriarty actually comes back in corporeum, as it were, but... Uh, I think I think I know where it's headed with uh, a certain twist, and um, I'm not very happy. Well, I haven't watched the third or fourth season, so no, I know. I guess I watched whatever I watched was when Moriarty came back. Uh, was that after the Mind Palace? The guy with the Google Glass? Yeah, yeah, he's not really back though. No, I, I don't, don't think, think so. No, so yeah, whatever. I it's. Again, with with a lot of these shows updating, it's just you got to you got to wonder. Well, and it goes back to that thing I was talking about earlier with Supernatural. You had you had enough story for five seasons and you've gone on now for another six seasons or more. Come on. Yeah, but 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 to, Seven, but to be eight. fair, they they did introduce Castiel. Well, Castiel was there in the first five yeah. seasons. Well, he was there in Four or five? Yeah, but his character made sense. Yeah. And it, you know, but now, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel terrible tearing on that show because uh, one of my best friends, his brother, wrote for that show for a while. He was the one that introduced that, um, oh, what's that redheaded girl's name? The one played by Felicia Day. Yes, he's the one that introduced that Felicia Day character on the show. And at the same time, it was like, 
everything would just stop for those episodes. Those episodes to me really kind of stood out. They stood out almost in the wrong way at times too, because they were so much better than some of the stuff that was around it. But then you got like the, that whole Leviathan thing that they were, uh, I don't, I don't want to get into a supernatural cast, but man, whew. Supernatural, again, like you mentioned, one of those shows that it maybe shouldn't have gone as long as it has. And it's still going. It's like 12 seasons. Boy. But it's I mean, again, this show only went for like nine episodes, 10 episodes. This show only went for 10 episodes. So, you know, maybe there's something to be said for (laughs) for ending before you ever get going. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play an interview with the creator of Night Stalker, Mr. Frank Spotnitz. Japan, but graduated from high school in Arizona. How did that come to pass? <laughs> yes, my dad was in the army, so I was born in a on an army base in Japan. And then he got transferred back to the states when I was four, and I lived in Colorado and Pennsylvania. And then he retired from the army in Phoenix, Arizona. So I spent the bulk of my childhood in Phoenix, and then uh, and then went to UCLA, and then I was a reporter for seven years, and in Indiana and in New York and in Paris. And then I went back to LA to go to film school at the American Film Institute. And then when I graduated, my first job was the X-Files. That's my oh, life wow. in a nutshell. Yeah. You just went right into job. it. I did. I was very lucky, which was good because I was already in my early thirties at that point. So I didn't have a lot of time to waste. How did you get interested in film and television? Well, I think I was always interested. Even as a little kid, I was pretty obsessed with TV and movies. I mean, really uh, completely consumed by it. And actually when I went to law, to UCLA, my, my intention had been to study film and television, but I lost my nerve. <laughs> I thought it's so difficult to succeed. And at the same time, I had a really inspiring journalism professor, a guy named Jim Howard, who um, taught at UCLA. He'd been an editor at the LA Times for many years. And I got excited about the idea of being a reporter. And so I became editor of my college paper and went on that path for a number of years. But by my mid-20s, it was pretty clear to me that actually it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And so I guess at 29, I went back to film school and I got my MFA from the American Film Institute to try and, you know, belatedly uh, pursue my my dream. And uh, it worked out. It seems to have worked out. Anyway. Transitioning from, you know, the AFI directly into the X-Files, how did that come about getting involved with the X-Files? When I first moved back to Los Angeles from Paris, I was asked to join a book group. Uh, and in that book group was a guy writing TV movies for Disney named Chris Carter. So I was in this book group for, I think it was maybe two years. And we would meet every two or three months and have dinner and talk about whatever book we just read. And, um, and then the book group came to an end. Uh, I graduated from film school and one Friday night I turned on the television and there was Chris's name on the X-Files. I'm like, oh, it's a guy from my book group. And I liked it. So I started watching it and I watched it every Friday. And then toward the end of the first season, a friend of mine from Phoenix, actually, who had also moved to Los Angeles to become a screenwriter, called me and said, don't you know this guy, Chris Carter? And I said, yeah, we, we were in a book group together uh, a few years ago. 
And he says, well, will you call him for me uh, and see if he'll let me come in and pitch some ideas, episode ideas for the X-Files? Like, wow, this is a little awkward um, because I haven't spoken to Chris. I never called him to say congratulations on X-Files. But I had known this guy since I was 10 years old. And so I thought, well, all right, I'll overcome my discomfort and I'll call. So I called Chris and he said, no, I will not hear your friend's pitch. But if you have any ideas, I'd love to hear yours. And of course, this is how smart I am. It had never crossed my mind <laughs> to call him and see if I could pitch an idea. I think at that point, I just I thought I was going to write movies. It never occurred to me to try and write for television. It actually was pretty easy to think of some ideas because I've been watching the show regularly. So I thought, why not? I'll give it a try. So I thought of three ideas. I went and I pitched them to him and he shot them all down. Didn't buy any of them. And I left and I thought, well, that was that was a waste of time. Um, and then a few weeks later, as I recall, uh, he called me and he said, I didn't buy any of your ideas, but they were all good. Here's what was good about this and this is good about this. I'm losing two writers Instead of writing a freelance episode for us, why don't you come on staff? And wow. that's how it happened. Yeah, completely <laughs> by accident. The truth is, I was very green. I'd never worked in television. I'd never professionally sold anything. I just got out of film school and was writing spec scripts. But I did connect with the show. It was exactly what I would have watched when I was a kid. And I think what Chris saw really from the first week I was there was that I did have some kind of native understanding of what the show was trying to do. And he just plunged me into it. And it was like a second film school for me that first year, uh, two years. And um, as green as I was, I rose very quickly. So by, by the end of three years, I was an executive producer on the show. So it, uh, it was the right place at the right time for me. You kind of talked a little bit about you know, how you got to know Chris Carter. What was it like working with him on the show as opposed to just, you know, hey, you want a job? He was one of the smartest, most driven guys you can imagine. Hugely competitive and really would not tolerate anything less than your best work. And he demanded it of everyone. And I think that's why there's so many distinguished alumni from X-Files, you know, Howard Gordon and Vince Gilligan and Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong and Darren Morgan and um, John Scheiben and on and on. There's a lot of great talent that's come out of that show. And it's I think it's because Chris really made you get to the bottom of whatever it was you had to offer. He led from the front. You know, he set that example. I don't think there was anybody who worked harder than he did, but but all of us really killed ourselves on that show. And really, you weren't going to stay unless you were prepared to kill yourself to work on that show. So it was seven days a week. You know, most days were easily 12-hour days. And you were called upon to be as smart and ambitious as you possibly could. And he, he never looked at it as disposable television. He never looked at it as a show that you would watch and then it would never be seen again. I think he always intended to create something that would withstand the test of time. And, uh, you know, a guy like that is not always going to be popular with the studio, which doesn't necessarily exist to create long-term assets like that. They tend to be more looking in the short term. You know, he, he earned the success of that show. You know, I, I, I know Vince feels the same way I do. That was the key professional experience for me. And I look back on it all the time and I uh, draw so many lessons from that experience that guide me to this day. Of the episodes that you wrote, do any stick out to you as maybe you know a personal favorite or one that kind of really has your you know fingerprints and your personal style kind of all over them? Well, the thing about the show is I would say the credits are hugely misleading. It was a deeply collaborative show. Many, many episodes that don't have my name on it. I worked really, really hard on those episodes and 
you know, a lot of the story and writing was mine or Vince's or Chris's. Uh, you know, I feel a huge ownership and pride across the series, not just the shows that have my name on them. It, it's almost accidental sometimes, ones that I was credited with versus ones that I wasn't credited with. You know, the, the episode that I'm, the standalone episode that I'm proudest of that had my name on it is Detour. Uh, which was a really tough episode. It was designed to be a cheap episode because, of course, we were always spending more money than they wanted us to. It ended up being hugely expensive because I thought we were going to save money by shooting in the woods the entire time, but, of course, it rained. <laughs> we had to keep adding days, and, and we ended up building this um, set because we couldn't get away from the rain uh, for Mulder and Scully around a campfire. But it, it turned out well, despite all the difficulties. It's sort of the mythology episode that I'm... I'm most proud of is Memento Mori, which is the Scully cancer episode, which, you know, happened by accident and bears the names of four writers. It's Chris, John, Vince, and me. And, uh, it's, it's the only, you know, single part mythology episode we did in nine years. And it's my favorite. You guys would go on to create the Lone Gunman TV show, which kind of has a similar, you know, fate of the the Kolchak reboot. You know, it was around yep. for a handful of episodes, and then it was unceremoniously kind of taken off the air. What was it like creating that spinoff show off of the X-Files with the writers from the X-Files? In my memory, Vince and John and I had wanted to do The Lone Gunman ever since an episode we'd done in season five, I think, maybe season six, called Three of a Kind. Uh, which was the Lone Gunman in Las Vegas with Scully. And we realized they could be these sort of comic Mission Impossible figures. And we really had great affection for those characters. But we were doing Millennium, and then we did Harsh Realm, and so it kept getting pushed. So by the time we finally had the opportunity to do uh, Lone Gunman, the popularity of the X-Files was already waning. You know, it was already past its peak. So I think we were we were a bit late getting there. And then I think everybody thought the idea of a TV show with those three guys as the lead uh, was unlikely to succeed. It's funny because, you know, at the time, we got absolutely obliterated by the critics. I mean, they hated the show. I don't think we got a single good review. Maybe we got one good review in the LA Times, but everybody else hated the show. And I have to tell you, I see TV critics all the time now who love the Lone Gunman. <laughs> it's like, where were you guys? Because at the time, it did not feel good at all. You know, and it's a show that people still talk to me about all the time, fondly, and because of the pilot episode and the, the World Trade Center thing. But we we loved that show. I mean, Vince, John, and I in particular, we loved doing it. It was just a joy. We loved those guys. We loved the team we'd assembled to do that show. And I think what happened was that that was already the beginning of the decline of network television. And Fox was looking for a new Friday night show that would improve their numbers in that slot. And it really, I think it began with Millennium, and then it continued with Lone Gunman and, and every show that has had that slot since then, which is that the audience was just beginning to shrink for network TV, and they didn't recognize it. So we begged uh, for them to keep the show on the air. We, we <laughs> ended up taking out ads in the newspapers, like diverting money from other budget items to try and get ads to save it. But we we couldn't do it. But obviously, you know, it's uh, it's something that we still really treasure. And and Vince, you know, wisely went on to um, to cast Michael McKean, who'd been in uh, Lone Gunman in uh, Better Call Saul. So the X Files came back last year in 2016. Did you watch the revival? And if you did, kind of what is your what are your thoughts on the revival? And were you involved at all in bringing it back? I, I absolutely watched it. I mean, I was 
actively involved with the fans, really from the point of the 2008 movie on. I don't think there was a, a week where I wasn't in contact with the fans on my website or in person. And, you know, for the last six plus years, I've been in Europe. So I've met with X-Files fan groups in Madrid and Berlin and London and Paris and Italy and Rome. So I've been really close to the fans and, and they've been really clever in supporting the X-Files all that time. And They've raised thousands of dollars for charity. They've taken their passion for the show and found ways to, to raise money for good causes uh, at the same time. So my first reaction when I heard the show was coming back was just, you know, elation for these fans that had never given up on wanting the show to come back. And then I was really hoping to work on it. And I did speak to Chris about doing one of the episodes, writing and directing one of the, one of the episodes. But Man of the High Castle was literally happening at the exact same time. You know, they were shooting in the summer, and so were we, and we were both in Vancouver, and actually, there were days when the Man of the High Castle set was a block away from the X-Files set. So I saw uh, Chris while he was up there. We had dinner together. I saw Gabe Rotter, um, producer at 1013, but um, it didn't work out, much to my regret. I, I did say to Chris, you know, if you want any help, if you want me to read scripts, I'd, I'd absolutely be very happy to, to do that. You don't have to pay me anything, but... Um, I, I didn't. And so I ended up watching the show just as a fan. And I have to say, I can offer no perspective on it because I think I'm just so close to it. It was very hard for me. You know, I, I, I just would keep thinking about things I would do. I'm not able to sort of disengage and be impartial about any of it. The only thing I will say is that I was really delighted because I didn't know he was going to do this, that Darren took what had been an episode of Night Stalker that was unproduced and retooled it for Mulder and Scully. So I knew that story very well. And I was really absolutely delighted. And it made me feel in some small indirect way that I got to be part of the uh, reboot after all. And that was the one where we actually kind of had a, I don't know, a cameo-ish from Kolchak. Yeah, I was very deliberate. I mean, as always, you know, Darren is so clever. And uh, I think he was paying homage to the source of that script, but also to the source of the X-Files, because it's you know, no exaggeration to say that there would be no X-Files without Night Stalker. That script, that story, I think, works on so many levels. Um, so I was I was particularly gratified by that episode for that reason. Now, what is your history with Kolchak, the, the TV movies and the series? Did you watch that when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, exactly like Chris. You know, we're, we're pretty close in age. He's, he's only a few years older than I am, and I think... We both watched that first TV movie on ABC, and it scared the hell out of us. I mean, I, I, it's one of those permanent feelings that you have when you watch something that just changes you in some way. And I'd never seen anything that scary before on television. And it had a fantastic character in, in Carl Kolchak, the way Darren McGavin interpreted him. So I loved it. And um, I loved Night Strangler as well. Probably not as much as Night Stalker, but I loved it as well. And then I watched the TV series um, religiously, but I didn't love the TV series. You know, I hope this isn't sacrilegious, but I didn't think the TV series was hugely successful. I didn't think they really made sense of it. I had a very hard time kind of believing the TV series, whereas I absolutely believe that first movie. That first movie in Las Vegas, I think one of the reasons it felt so scary was at the time it felt very real. It felt absolutely credible that there could be a vampire in Las Vegas, but the TV series never got there for me. So it got canceled and I wasn't shocked. And then years later, I wasn't shocked to read that Darren McGavin himself had been very unhappy with the TV series and felt it never lived up to the potential of TV movies. Well, one of the things that we've discussed on this podcast before is the idea of Carl kind of being stuck in Chicago where Mulder and Scully are 
mobile. And that seems to, at least for me, have played a part as far as the TV show not being as, as successful as the movies, the TV movies. It didn't necessarily make sense that everything happens just in Chicago. You are so right. And, and, you know, that was one of my huge challenges when I, you know, accepted the task of trying to reboot Night Stalker was I realized time and time again how many things Chris had done right in making the X-Files um, that had not been done right in trying to turn Night Stalker into a TV series. X-Files takes the best of that genre, and it, it's a perfect it's a perfect vehicle for a television series. The believer-skeptic dynamic, having the woman be the skeptic and the man be the believer, having it be FBI agents who are investigating crimes that have no real-world solution so they can travel all over the country. It's it's perfect. And Night Stalker didn't have all those advantages, which makes it a, a real uh, challenge to, to turn into a TV series. So how did the reboot come about for you? Well, it ended up being sort of reimagining. So I was approached by Mark Pedowitz, who was the head of what was then called Touchstone Studios, later ABC Studios, uh, who is a lovely guy, still one of my favorite people in Hollywood, very literate, honest, kind person who loved Night Soccer like I did. And I could tell he had a genuine love for it. And he was in contact with Dan Curtis, who, of course, not only directed Night Stalker, but um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and uh, Winds of War and you know many other Dark Shadows, many other seminal pieces of television. And I was really flattered and tempted. You know, if you watch The X-Files, that I'd already you know, been in contact with uh, Darren McGavin. We'd, we'd written him as Arthur Dales, as the original uh, X-Files investigator, you know, in, in a... Uh, a, a prequel episode called Travelers, um, and, and unfortunately, uh, Darren passed away when he was he'd been brought back in another episode that David Ducote was directing, and he had to be recast because he passed away while we were, or he got ill while we were filming. So I felt, you know, a pretty close connection to Night Stalker, and I was kind of excited about the challenge. But originally, what I had written was the Darren McGavin character that I felt so close to was the guy who wore the seersucker suit and the slip-on uh, tennis shoes and the straw hat. I originally had conceived something that would be appropriate for, say, Ted Danson or John C. Riley. And what I had imagined was that newspapers were dying, right? And th- this was 2005 to 2004 when I was writing, and, and already newspapers were dying. And so Carl was going to TV, and... um he was doing a sort of a Bill O'Reilly kind of show and struggling. And he was investigating supernatural stuff on television. And he was viewed as a quack. And it was going to be him and his female line producer who were going to be investigating these things. And they were going to be laughed at and discredited uh, by the audience and by the world, not taken seriously, but, but they were going to be real. Anyway, I was really happy with that. And I went in to pitch it to ABC, and the guy who was the head of the network uh, hated it. He didn't want a middle-aged guy. He wanted a young guy in his 20s, good-looking guy. Uh, he wanted the female lead to be equally important. And he, he claimed that X-Files never showed monsters its first season. I'm like, dude, tombs, what are you talking about? Like, Whoa, never yeah. Two. Like, right away we showed monsters. So I, I had a huge problem in that I could not make the show that I wanted to make or I think that Mark Pedowitz wanted to make. And it was pretty clear to me what they wanted, what the, what the network wanted versus what the studio wanted. The network wanted me to do an X-Files ripoff. 
And of course, that was the last thing I'd wanted to do after having worked on the X-Files all those years and, and knowing, you know, appreciating afresh how brilliant the X-Files was by having studied night soccer and how to adapt it. I saw that that was a losing game to try to simply do another version of the X-Files. I ended up coming up with what I would say is sort of a reimagining of Night Stalker because it was so different from the original concept in so many ways. You know, as you know, if you've seen the show, this character is younger, but has a wife who was murdered, whom he suspected of actually having killed, which is his personal connection to it. He's being investigated by an FBI agent who believes he is guilty. And he moves to Los Angeles, gets a job from his old friend Tony, and he's seeing things that other people can't see. And it's not simply a believer-skeptic dynamic. There's also this young photographer, Jane McManus, who's in the middle. And I, and I felt like it was a sto- storytelling vehicle that was different enough from the X-Files to be interesting to me and would offer different terrain for me to explore. So that got past the network. They were they were pleased with me making that version of Night Stalker. But I think, honestly, I was dead from that point the first reason is because people who remembered Night Stalker, who loved Night Stalker like I did, wanted the Darren McGavin character. I think it didn't matter how good Stuart Townsend or Gabrielle Union or Eric Youngman or anybody else was in that show. I was not rewarding their memories of the original with this approach. Nostalgia is a double-edged sword. It sort of gives you advantage because people want to tune in to revisit their memories but then they punish you if you don't reward those expectations. And I think we didn't in any way, which, of course, I wasn't allowed to. So that wasn't going to happen. But I think the other problem was that the network, after having insisted on their version of the show, never really wanted the show. So they gave us probably the worst time slot on the schedule, which was Thursdays at 9, opposite The Apprentice with our future president-elect and CSI. And it was a death slot. And so, you know, of course, we weren't going to perform at that at that time. But there was one other uh, sob story that I should I should tell, which is that when we started breaking the stories for the show in my writer's room, like the original Night Stalker series, we did monsters, all kinds of monsters. But we tried to make them grounded and believable and scary. And we sent over, I think it was something like six or eight story ideas to the network, and they rejected them all. Uh, and I'm like, wow, I've never had that happen before. They rejected every single idea. And it came back that, as I said, the network didn't believe we should have any monsters at all. And I'm like, well, this is Night Stalker. I mean, what is this show if it's not monsters? They said, well, just make them scary. Just have it be people who, yeah, there's something supernatural about them, but there's no monsters. They're just scary people. I'm like, all right. So we did this episode called The Five People You Meet in Hell by Tom Schnauz, and it's sort of like a Charles Manson type figure who's blind, who's in prison, and he can direct his followers to do terrible things from inside the prison. And it was really scary. And I remember when the network first saw it, I got a call saying, wow, thank you so much. That's a great hour of television. We're so happy we ordered the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, oh, great. That's really nice. Then I think it was about two weeks later, one of the executives calls me and says, um, Frank, can I come see you in your office? We, we need to talk. Said, sure. And it turns out that they tested that episode, and it was too scary. It was too scary for their viewers. And so they said, so can you make Night Stalker without monsters and make it scary but not too scary? <laughs> and I just said, I don't know how to do that. I'm sorry. So the plan was, before we got canceled, was that we were going to keep doing these episodes that didn't literally have monsters. 
but that after the first eight, they would revisit the question. So the the Darren Morgan episode that later became part of the X-Files reboot in season 10 was originally called the M-word, as in monster, because it was Darren making fun of ABC because they wouldn't let us uh, show monsters, which is so much a part of that episode. Episode 5 seems to be the last one that played in regular rotation, and then you moved off into uh, other networks. When Episode 5 was the last one, is that when Episode 11 and 12 kind of got the plug pulled on those? The last one we were shooting was Vince's episode, uh, What's the Frequency Kolchak? And the word came down on a Friday that we were canceled. And we we had actually shot the entire episode except for the teaser. And we were about to shoot the teaser. And I said, well, you know, let's finish the teaser. And they said, no, no, you need to shut down right away. And I said, well, I don't really understand why, because we're already paying for this day no matter what. You know, let us just finish the day. And they said, no, you must shut down now. I go, okay. So I had to go to the set and tell everybody that we were canceled. And, and they thought I was kidding. They, they couldn't believe it. They, they didn't, despite the fact that our ratings were, were good, I think everybody felt the show was good and it's clear that our time slot was what was killing us. But um, they couldn't believe it. But it was true. We were canceled with sort of no notice. Then about two weeks later, they called and they said, you know, we've decided that this show could be sold to, I can't remember who it was that, were, that who ran the rest of the episodes. Was it USA? But there was some other network that was going to run the entire show. And we can do a DVD release. So we'd like you to finish all the episodes that you haven't finished posting, including Vince's episode that they pulled the plug on without a teaser. Fortunately, that episode still made sense uh, without the teaser. So that episode, which is on the DVD and on iTunes, I think still, turned out really well, even though, uh, you know, fortunately for us, the one thing that they didn't let us shoot didn't, uh, didn't, didn't keep us from completing it at the end of the day. What was your original arc for the Night Stalker? And, you know, there's some information kind of that's been culled from the commentary on the DVD and, and interviews with you. But kind of what was the end game with his wife and the marks on his wrists? The idea was that he was evil, that he was born evil and that he bore the sort of mark of Cain. The deeper question was, do you have free will? And just because he was marked as evil, could he actually change and 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 be good uh, or, or fight against evil? And so that, that's why there's that moment with those motorcyclists. And you know, when they stop and they see he's got the mark, they're not going to kill him because he's marked as evil. And in that episode, when he goes to that weird house and he's talking to the voice on the phone, that, in fact, is Stuart Townsend's own voice treated. So... That's really where the story was going to go was, was, you know, the evil in all of us and whether we can overcome the evil in all of us, which, you know, to me is an interesting question. And this is one of the things I learned, you know, it took years for me to kind of figure this out doing X-Files is I think the best episodes of the X-Files ask really interesting questions. They didn't give you answers. I don't think art, if you can call what we do art, gives people answers. It just asks really interesting questions and invites you to, to reflect upon them. And so I, I, I always think now, especially when I'm doing stuff in the supernatural genre or science fiction, you know, what's this about? What's the question I'm asking? And that was the question, you know, it can Kolchak be redeemed. And, and I think that's why he was, he seemed to always be drawn to supernatural stuff, seemed to have a nose for it because he was connected to the dark side. And then, and then of course, you know, with, with Perry Reed, he would see whether he could, he could change. 
so that's where where I was going to the best of my memory. In the original show, Kolchak is not directly involved with the the stories per se. He's kind of obviously he's investigating them. Was that kind of a a requirement of the reimagining that he be implicitly part of the major mythology narrative of the show, or was that something that you felt was important to introduce into the show? Well, both. I mean, and that's that's the other funny thing that happens is that you know after X Files which, as you know, had mythology episodes probably, you know, a third at the time or less, right? We probably had maybe six mythology episodes a year out of 24, so a quarter of the time. By the time I got to doing Night Stalker, the networks just wanted mythology every week. I mean, there's just this huge pressure to, to have this continuing serialized storyline all the time, which I resisted to varying degrees. Because I'd seen what happens, you know, on X-Files, it becomes so Byzantine so quickly, right? And, and by the last three years of X-Files, you know, we had so much set up and just having to service what you've already established and it becomes very burdensome. So I, I wanted to keep it as simple as possible. But on the other side of that, I, I think, again, you know, falling into the category of things Chris did so brilliantly in the X-Files, that was an improvement in my mind on the original idea of Night Stalker was he found a personal connection for Mulder to these cases that he was investigating, right? It, it wasn't just uh, something randomly happening to Fox Mulder. It was, it was the, the trauma of his life. It was the loss of his sister that got him interested in all of this. That made this emotionally resonant for him every week, whether it was a, a case involving uh, alien abduction or not. That does create a deeper emotional uh, level for the storytelling that I wanted Kolchak to have. And it makes it less random and more believable if he's connected to this in some way. Mulder and Scully can fly all over the country. Kolchak's in one city. So why does he keep finding all the stuff in this one city? And, and I think that the idea that he has some connection to it really helps to answer that question. Do you think that the kind of time is right again to maybe revisit the Kolchak character? Or do you think that there are other shows out there that are maybe doing essentially the same thing that it's kind of makes a Kolchak TV show a little, a little less kind of success, you know, possibly successful in the current TV landscape? I will say, first of all, it's very, very hard to fill Darren McGavin's shoes. He really made that show. <laughs> he was just. Such an incredibly charming, charismatic, wonderful actor. But having said that, he created a brilliant character. I mean, I think he is one of the great characters in television history. And so I think if somebody were to reapproach it with reverence and, and with the idea that you could preserve that character that Darren McGavin created, I absolutely think it's a good idea. I mean, I, I thought it even after they canceled my show, you know, I thought now somebody should come along and do it with the Darren McGavin character. And there was talk about doing that with uh, Johnny Depp. I think they were going to try and do it as a feature film, which I thought you know could have been great. So I still think it's a good idea, but I think it would need you know a studio or a network that was willing to embrace this you know middle-aged, down and out uh, reporter who is charming. That's a it's a wonderful. Uh, wonderful character and a wonderful way into that world. And I also think, you know, now television has changed and you wouldn't have to do it, uh, necessarily if you were to do it as a television series in the purely episodic format that, uh, I obviously had to do it in, in 2005. So I think that there, there's sort of a creative freedom you could have with a Kolchak character now that you couldn't have had before. And that would be very exciting. 
If you had a chance to do a show again now, who would be your choice? Because you spoke about Ted Danson and John C. Riley as your choices for Kolchak back in 2005. Who would have been your choice for Kolchak if you were working on the show now? You know, a guy like Stephen Root, who I just cast in The Man in the High Castle. I think we you want somebody, like you know, and this is why I thought of John C. Riley the last time around. I think you want somebody who's of a certain age, but who also has comic chops in this genre. That's really important. You need the humor to release the tension, and somehow it makes it even scarier. So uh, a guy like Stephen Root, if you gave me a, a few hours, I'd probably come up with, with a much longer list. You know, John Hawks is another one who actually we cast in Millennium and uh, in X-Files as well. Guys like that, though, who are in their 40s or, or early 50s who are great actors but are also are genuinely very funny. You talked about how television has changed, and you definitely have lived through so much of these changes. What has that been like for you going from a network show to an, an Amazon show? Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I mean, my feelings have become more complicated over time about this. I mean, the first thing is it's absolutely the best time in television ever. I don't think there's any arguing with that. I mean, just the the number of shows, the quality of those shows, the risk-taking, the complexity of the narrative, the budgets that you're given. I mean, everything about it is just hugely exciting. So for me, I'm just thrilled, and it's the best time ever, and I've never worked harder in my life. And, you know, I'm just I'm just uh, grateful for all the opportunities to tell good stories. I will say there is something that has been lost, and that is when you did television in the 90s or really any point before then, you had very few uh, broadcast outlets, and everything you did had to appeal to a mass audience, had to appeal to what we would now call a free TV audience, right? That term didn't exist then because all TV was free back then. All TV was advertiser-driven, and that was creatively limiting, absolutely. There were only certain types of stories you could tell, and the format was very restrictive, and the types of heroes you could have were very limited. However, the best talent that we had was all focused on telling those stories and they reached a huge audience and it was a common discussion that our country had. And I'm sure, you know, you can remember, you know, if you were a kid at that point, going to school the next day and everybody saw the same show and was talking about it or going to work the next day and everybody saw the same show. And, and it was, it was uh, something that uh, we all shared as a culture. And now that's absolutely gone. Now um, the best TV uh, you have to pay for you know, with a cable subscription or by buying Netflix or Amazon. So like so many other things in our society, television has become stratified and the haves and the have-nots, right? There's people who can afford these premium services and those shows are really designed for those people, for more sophisticated viewers. And all the best talent or most of the best talent has fled to those types of shows. Of course, understandably, right? I've done it too. But what it means is that that mass audience that can't necessarily afford to pay for these subscriptions is being hugely underserved. And, you know, I'm really proud that The X-Files was a network TV show that was free and that everybody could watch and that I think, you know, challenged people and, and, and really, you know, there was no limit to our ambition for that show. And I think um, it's much harder now. So one of the things I've done very deliberately, um, is I've tried to keep a hand in free TV. So I will do Man in the High Castle uh, for Amazon or 
Medici for Netflix because they're great creative opportunities and the budgets are, you know, wonderful to have. But I also want to do a show like Ransom for CBS that I think is a really good traditional episodic show that serves a free TV audience. I, I, I still love that format and I still think there's, you know, it's, it's very important to, to reach all those viewers, not just the ones who can afford to pay for subscriptions. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for Man in the High Castle. I'm a, a very big Philip K. Dick fan. I was curious, when it came to that property, though, how did you decide what you, how you're going to transform that from a book into this series? I mean, just some of the creative decisions that you made are just really wonderful. Oh, thanks. Well, I was terrified. <laughs> they had been trying for, I don't know, seven years, I think, to get that made when uh, David Zucker from Scott Free came to me. And I knew David. I'd done it for years. And I knew all the struggles he'd been going through with that project. And he says, we have one more shot at this with Sci-Fi Network. Would you like to take a crack at it? And I just finished Hunted, um, sort of a, a failed second season of Hunted. I only say it failed because the funding never came through. I'd been working on it for six months. Um, and, and the, 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 the financial deal between, uh, HBO and my British partner fell through. So I said yes without even hesitating. And then I went back and I reread the book for the first time since college. And I was like, oh gosh, <laughs> I remember loving the book and I do love the book. I do still love it, but it's not really a narrative. You know, it's not really a story that you could tell on television or in the movies. And I can see why reading it again, why that had such a difficult time. It's a, it's a fascinating world, fascinating characters in a situation. And I thought, geez, what am I going to do? You know, I've committed to this now. <laughs> uh, and I don't want to be one of those writers who adapts Philip K. Dick and really just sort of takes a couple things and ignores the rest. I really wanted to honor him and, and what he'd written. And so I was stuck for several weeks. And then what I did is I went back and I read one of the old scripts that had been written. And I saw that this guy, I can't remember whose script it was, um, had completely changed the book. And I, I realized that what I needed to do was I, I needed to make changes to the book, but I needed to make them consistent with what I understood his intent to be. And by his intent, I mean not so much with the story that he thought he was going to tell, because I don't think he really intended to tell a narrative for television, obviously, but what the themes and ideas were that were important to him as best as I could understand them. And so I thought, to me, this is about humanity and, and inhumanity. It's about how you respond to inhumanity, and it's about what is real. And so I, I went about building out the narrative consistent with those themes, and I added antagonists, because there were no antagonists really in the book, so I added Inspector Quito and in San Francisco and and uh, Obergroup and Fira Smith in New York. And I sort of rewound the Frank Giuliano relationship because in the book they're divorced and she's in Kansas City and I have them, you know, still together, uh, in San Francisco and, and I made a bunch of other changes. But to me, they were all consistent with trying to explore the ideas that Philip K. Dick had identified that I thought were so powerful. And much to my relief, you know, people watched the show and they felt they understood why I'd made the changes I'd made. I didn't feel, by and large, that I'd been disrespectful or violated anything that Philip K. Dick was trying to do. And, you know, actually, as I'm sitting here saying all this to you, I'm realizing I probably was informed by my Night Stalker experience in that. I probably, that probably a lot of that caution that I had about adapting Philip K. Dick in the back of my mind was remembering how unhappy people were with the changes. Not all people, but many people 
were with the changes I'd made to Kolchak. And I wanted to make sure I didn't um, make the same mistake twice. Well, fortunately, I think Philip K. Dick fans might be maybe less vocal just because we've been burned before by so many things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do feel, you know, pretty satisfied that the, the hardcore Philip K. Dick fans, even if they don't necessarily agree with everything I did in the adaptation, they, they at least understand why, uh, by and large. And I have to say, it's really kind of scary these days. I mean, the 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 series seems to be uh, coming true in real life at times. I mean, seeing all the swastikas that came up after uh, Trump's election, it's just like, oh, wow. It's it's almost you can't say it's prescient since it takes place in the past, but it's just uh, it, it's a little frightening to see, um, you know, America under Nazi occupation in the series. What I was reacting to was uh, the post 9-11 world. And I think. We're still living in a post 9-11 world. You know, X-Files got canceled in my mind, not because David had left the show, but because 9-11 had happened. I think suddenly 9-11 happened and nobody wanted to watch a show where they couldn't trust their government. And I think what's happened is now we live in fear. That's not a very good place to live. And people who are afraid don't make very good decisions. And what I was trying to say in Man in the High Castle was don't just look at the Nazis over there and say they're bad, we're good. It doesn't work that way. I spent a lot of time in Germany. I can tell you the German people are really good people. <laughs> you know, they're really good people. Anybody uh, under the right circumstances can embrace an evil ideology. And people that you otherwise think are good, people who you would love to have dinner with, you know, family and friends could turn around and embrace an evil ideology. And that's why I went out of my way to show that Obergruppian Fira Smith is a lovely man. I mean, he's a great father, wonderful husband. He's respected by everybody who works for him. He just happens to be in the grip of an absolutely evil way of thinking. And that can happen here as well as, you know, in Europe. It can happen anywhere. And that's what I was trying to say. And I think that message is kind of uh, timeless. You know, it's, it's, it's eternal. I think it, it's sort of taken on new relevance now because people are getting more frightened. And what I said, you know, if you were to go back and, and, and watch me speaking in interviews or, at, you know, fan conventions uh, before the election, right, before we even knew who the candidates were, was America is an idea. And it's up to each generation to live up to that idea. And we have to remember who we are and what we're supposed to stand for. And we can't be afraid because uh, we're not going to do the right thing otherwise. And I do think, you know, a lot of Western civilization, just to, to generalize for a moment, we've become about making money, about being safe, about being healthy and living a long time. Uh, and that's fine. You know, those, those are, those are selfish wants, but there's nothing wrong with them. But those aren't values. That's not what we stand for. That's not who we are. And, you know, our civilization has, has been attacked. And the way you defend yourself is with your values and remembering who you are and what you stand for. And I think too many of us, you know, honestly, we, we watch too much TV. <laughs> we, you know, we think if we're watching TV that is saying the right thing that somehow we're, we're making the world a better place. Well, no, you actually have to get off your sofa and go out in the real world and engage. And, and that's how you make the world a better place. And, um, I think, I think people are beginning to see that. And so, uh, you know, that's my, my cause for, for optimism is that, you know, people are, are starting to realize that, you know, you can't just assume everything's going to go the way you want it to go. If you want the world to be a better place, you've got to, you got to fight to make it that place. 
Well, speaking of um, making money and uh, watching television, what are you working on lately? I'm, I, I was reading about the Indian detective, and that sounds very good. Ah, thanks. Yeah, that's actually that's our next project that's going to be shooting uh, in the next month or so um, in South Africa and India and Toronto with uh, comedian Russell Peters. And uh, that should be a lot of fun. I mean, it's the first time I've done comedy really since Lone Gunman. Uh, and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying some lightness. <laughs> it's also about something. I think everything I do tries to be about something, but it's really warm and, and lovely and, and funny. Uh, we had, uh, Medici Masters of Florence, uh, that was on Italian television. It was the most successful show, um, in, I think a couple of years at least. Um, and is now available on Netflix. I'm very proud of that. We're working on season two of that right now. Ransom just debuted on CBS yesterday after football and will be on Saturday nights. And Man Lie Castle um, came out on Amazon on the 16th. Uh, we're waiting to hear about a season three for that. And then, you know, I'm based in London and Paris, my production company, and, and we have we have a lot of other things that uh, I hope to be able to talk about in the near future. back and we were talking about Night Stalker, a.k.a. Kolchak 2005. I'm so glad that we got to talk to uh, Frank Spotnitz about that. I mean, you were you were so giddy when I when you uh, managed to line that up. I was giddy because I'm a huge fan of the X-Files. <laughs> Again, another thing uh, kind of tying back into the Kolchak Night Stalker X-Files connection with Frank Spotnitz bringing this back. X-Files is coming back as well. So maybe we'll see Frank Spotnitz getting in on that since he's no longer involved with the man in the high tower. Right. Yeah, that was really weird. And we probably should tell the listeners that when we recorded the interview with him, it was what, two days before they announced that he was off man. Uh, It was like the same day. I mean, it was crazy because we talked to him right at the beginning of this year and it yeah, it was so close, and I, to the point where I was just like, "Did he know?" As I'm like, they're lavishing praise upon him about Man in the High Tower. Did he know that he was already off the show? Was he just like sitting there gritting his teeth, or not? And and then at the same time, I don't know how much was his decision, how much was their decision, if it was amicable or not. But whenever they announce a new showrunner like that, I always think that it's not amicable. I always think of the the Frank Darabont Walking um, Dead Walking Dead situation. Yes. 
I feel like it happened the same day. I, I distinctly remember looking at him being like, Mike, oh my God, what? Oh yeah, we, as soon as that news came out, we're like sharing the link with each other. Like, oh shit. But you know, it was awesome to get to talk with him. And like like I said, it tra- changed my opinion about this show. And this show's not bad. The problem is, is when you put it up against what we know and love, it's clearly inferior. But let's be honest here. And this kind of ties all of this back full circle. Talk about, you know, the Sherlock show or X-Files or Fringe. When you make a show that is derivative of another show or a remake of a show or a new season of a show coming back like the X-Files or this the Night Stalker or Sherlock and Elementary one of them is undoubtedly going to be inferior to the other because it's a reimagining through the eyes of someone else. Kolchak, the Night Stalker, this show is Frank Spotnitz's take on Kolchak. Would I have been more pleased if it had just been a straightforward Kolchak reboot? I Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'd be sitting here complaining and saying, well, it's too much like the original. It doesn't do enough. Fuck me. I mean, fuck me, right? Like, I can't have it both ways. But at the same time... You have to strike a balance. Right. Would we be sitting there going, well, Brian Cranston doesn't really capture that spirit of of Darren McGavin as well as he thinks he does. That's kind of the other thing about this show that is a little odd to me is how young Kolchak is. Vincenzo is is talking even in the script where he's just like, oh, you know, I, I, I've known Carl Kolchak since I was a cub reporter and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like – well, you seem older, so shouldn't – I mean, but I think Spotnitz addressed that too, that he wanted an older guy. Didn't he say that he wanted like a John Goodman or something? Well, he said that he wanted an, an older actor, but that the studio felt it was unprofitable or not something that they would be able to do. Not hip enough probably. They probably said, this is our demographic. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to get people to tune into this? Well, let's get Gabby Union. She's really hot. We've seen her in the Bring It On movies. She's got a great appeal. She's got, you know, at this point, they probably weren't worried about how many Twitter followers she had as they do now. Or it's just like, what, what is the marketability of our, of our stars by their likes on Facebook and their Twitter followers? But... They definitely went for that demographic and tried to recast this as the young, hip Kolchak and not even, you know, by calling it the Night Stalker instead of Kolchak. It's like, okay, you know, if you don't know that there was another show called that, I mean, this could be one of those things where when people were watching this, let's say when kids were watching this in 2005, if they didn't look online and see an article from whatever BuzzFeed was back then saying, did you know there was another show that had this same character? They'd probably be like, oh my God, I had no idea, (laughs) you know, because Kolchak to this day it's still something that you have to seek out. It's not like it, you know, I mean, if you didn't catch it on sci-fi or if you didn't have somebody that knew about the show and talked about the show, I mean, thank God Chris Carter and and the guys from the X-Files talked about Kolchak quite a bit. Otherwise, you know, you might not know about it. And it's on Netflix now too. Is it back on Netflix? It was when I, it was when we started this. So, but to be fair, Netflix is like the revolving door of, of streaming content. I know it's on something called me TV because I keep seeing like people post about Kolchak a lot on Twitter and I'm just like, Oh, this is interesting. So, uh, and yeah, people on also because me TV also has Svengoolie and I follow Svengoolie 
on um, Facebook, and then people will post and say, hey, let's live comment on Kolchak. And I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's something fun to do, I suppose. A show that's like 50 years old. <laughs> that was me live tweeting uh, the Warriors, you know. But I was being the characters from the Warriors as I was doing it, as if they were, uh, as if all the Warriors had mobile phone, phones while they were going from, you know, Coney Island up to the big meeting and then back right. down again. The thing about Kolchak and especially this show, this show, this show is even harder to find. This show has never been on any streaming service, best of my knowledge, outside of iTunes. But then it wasn't a streaming service. You had to purchase it. I think, yeah, yeah. I purchased this through Amazon a long time ago. So if I go out to my Amazon library, I might still have this out there. This and like sheer genius season two, the uh, TV uh, haircutting uh, reality show. (laughs) I wanted to rewatch it. It's hard to imagine anyone coming back to this show other than like maybe super fans, but I don't think this is a bad show, at least not this first episode. And I know that there's like a lot of vitriol directed at this show. Oh yeah. There's one episode and I don't know right offhand which episode it is, so I'm very excited to like finally get there, like in a couple of years or whenever <laughs> right. we get to this. 2020, folks. There's something out. There's one episode of this show that to this day I remember it as if it were yesterday, the first time I saw it, because it stuck with me that much. And so I'm very excited to talk about that episode. And I'm very curious to find out which episode that is, who wrote that episode, and talk about that thing. Because, yeah, there's one that really does it to you. But otherwise, I still think about Mr. Ring, and I think about Richard Keel, and I think about William Smith, and I think about Eric Estrada. I think about the original Kolchak. Yeah, I do too. I, th- this will never replace it. This is just kind of an interesting mid 2000s sci-fi shows trying to get their footing in kind of the wake and success of like Lost and kind of post. I mean, this is like post X-Files. We're like three or four years removed, I think, from the end of X-Files. People are trying to find the next big X-Files because and yeah, I'm not sitting on my soapbox here when I say that X-Files is one of the biggest TV shows of all time. Like it was a cultural phenomenon. And when there's a void with a show like that, everyone will try to fill that void and just throw everything they can at the wall. And that's what they, you know, Kolchak is in that same vein. And I think Supernatural and Fringe filled that void. And I personally think Supernatural is still filling the void that the X-Files left. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, I'm amazed that Fringe was able to come along and fill that void for a little while and survive against things like Supernatural. I mean, sometimes it feels almost like there's a glut of television when it comes to I mean, it, it used to be, as you know, it used to be tough to find good sci-fi yeah. TV, and now it's almost there's almost too much of it. I mean, well, this season was crazy when it came to time travel shows. I think there were like five time travel shows that all started at the same time. I don't think it, many, if any, have lasted, but who knows, because it's tough to keep up on TV. Yeah, I've just kind of given up. On TV. If if I want to watch something, I'll watch it after it's completely done airing, which I keep telling myself that about Supernatural. And maybe that show will continue to go for another 10 seasons so I can wait another 10 years to watch it. 
But and, and let's be honest here. That's not a joke. That's realistic. That could happen. <laughs> I mean, there's no end in sight for that show. So, oh, yeah. Well, eventually, eventually their looks will fade. Uh, Jared Padalecki and Jer- uh, Jensen Ackles are timeless, dude. They look as good as when they started that show. I don't know what demon blood they've been drinking but man they look the yellow-eyed demon has bestowed upon them timeless good looks <laughs> you know I, you know i'm right they went to the crossroads mm-hmm. that's right they met lily and ruby and that's where they did it so then they got that mark of cane oh god that was a terrible oh, jesus christ i just i i love how shows like kolchak and supernatural and fringe all give so much back to the original Kolchak without ever acknowledging that they do. Except for X-Files. X-Files, I mean, even in the new season of X-Files, where they essentially had a character who looked like Kolchak. And in the original show, they had Darren McGavin. But, I mean, you know, there's not a whole lot that ties this Kolchak back to the original. Except for that horrifying Darren McGavin. (laughs) God, that might have been worse than Grand Moff Tarkin's. That's what it reminded me of. Yeah. Well, and it was just obviously from some other thing, just him like, hey, let's take this shot of McGavin and cut out the background and stick it in here. Won't that be cool? I don't know what they were going for with that Darren McGavin, but it was pretty bad. If they had good intentions, I can't even say good job because it just they should have. Nice try. Yeah. They could have had some they could have had a guy in a pork pie hat and the the suit like pass by an open doorway someplace but but yeah not this they could have had Murray from Flight of the Concords just walk by somewhere yeah, in the distance but not like a full on full frontal cold check so Chris Statue, tell me, what are you up to these days at the Culture Cast? Talking time travel movies and really more than anything else, getting into the absolute glut of new summer movies. So, yeah, we're getting into the glut of these summer movies. We talked Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 a couple weeks back. This week, we're going to be talking. What a nightmare. Yeah, right. How terrible. Uh, and then next week we're going to be talking about alien covenant, which high hopes reserved high hopes, but, uh, but we're doing time travel movies interspersed, but unfortunately summer movies are kind of taken over because it seems like every week for the next three months, something new and exciting and possibly terrible is coming out. So kind of just racking up the summer movies, alien covenant, King Arthur and the legend of Sam Crow, and then whatever the movie is at the end of the month that I can't even think of. Pirates of the Caribbean. It's the last one, hopefully. So that it has that going for it. But if you want to hear me and my co-host Eric talk about those movies, head on over to cultureshock.com forward slash culture cast, or we are on all podcast apps, iTunes, iOS, and Zune, if you still have one of those bad boys. So check us out on there. We are the Culture Cast, and we have terrible opinions about movies. What about you, Mike? Where can people find the Projection Booth? Well, they can find it over at projection-booth.com. How's that for easy, huh? If it wasn't for that dash, it might be an easy URL. Why are you leaving out the best Twitter handle on Twitter, (laughs) probooth.com? Hey, man, probiscus.com, your home for alien egg inserting sexual toy devices. <laughs> hey, you know what? At least culture stash. Well, probooth.gis makes sense, too. It's just 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 saying it very fast just makes it sound like probiscus. 
So what are you talking about this month, the month of May? What are you talking about? Well, you know, we had Mother's Day recently, and so we did an episode on Mommy Dearest. Uh, also did a special on 1984, which oddly seems very timely uh, in 2017. And uh, talking about, yeah, we're, we're all over the map this month with uh, the ninth configuration, Peter Laurie's The Lost One, Marlon Brando's One-Eyed Jacks. I guess really it's a, for, for those two movies, it's a... A one and done actors who turned director and just directed the one film and yeah and then uh, coming up next month uh, I'm very excited we have uh, the return of Chris Stashu to the projection booth with John dies at the end you brought me back for a movie that is as insane as I am looking forward to it John dies at the end is an absolutely batshit insane movie <laughs> yeah no it's crazy Don Coscarelli I mean if you've only seen phantasm you're doing yourself a disservice because john dies at the end i would say is my favorite movie that he's done yeah yeah no i definitely would as well i mean i i like some things about bubba hotep obviously i i love a lot of things about uh some of the phantasm movies but yeah john dies is the one that i go back to time yeah, and again bubba hotep we did a whole podcast about it I think I like the idea of Bubba Hotep, but the execution where it's like an hour and a half movie that only like a half hour of it is really entertaining. Kind of disappointing. I'm no tales uh, of the from the crypt expert such as you, but I would say that that seems like it would make a really good tale. It would. Crypt. It really would. And the makeup would have been just about as bad on Bruce Campbell's face where it looks like he's got like chicken skin taped to his jowls. So. At least we have Ash vs. the Evil Dead to fall back on for Bruce Campbell because Bubba Hotep was not a great film outing for him. No, no. But I always enjoy seeing him in whatever. And really, that, that movie belonged to Ossie Davis. Yeah, anyway. agreed. Black JFK for the win. Rise up. Come on over to projection-booth.com and go over to cultureshocked.com and you will find out more about more more about us than you would ever really ever want to know so what about the next Colchak tapes mike that's kind of the last thing we need to plug we need to plug this on this on this yeah well we are going to go back to the past we're going to go back to the original Colchak. we're going to go back to the night stalker and talk about the second episode now it's a good thing that you and i we talked about uh sugar hill a while ago because I see a lot of similarities here with this uh, this next one where we're talking about the zombie. So I'm I'm excited to do that. I mean, this has the zombie episode of Cole Jack, the Night Stalker has one of the best casts ever to have both Scatman Crothers and Antonio Fargas in one episode. I mean, fuck me sideways. It is just amazing. And there's a great drink named after it, too. So all good things. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to go on over to ColchakTapes.com, we've got links there where you can go over to iTunes and leave us a review. I do want to thank the people who have given us reviews on iTunes. That really helps. And I also want to thank John Walker, who provides the music for our show. Fantastic theme that he put together there. So, yeah, come on over to ColchakTapes.com. Join in the conversation. Leave us your thoughts. We always appreciate hearing from you. Yeah, we do. Good or bad, folks. Let us know how we're doing. Right. Yeah. We we are tailor tailoring our episodes. To we're Jonathan Taylor Thomasing our episodes to your needs. So if you think we're being too negative, JTT, WDJTT, WDJTTD. Actually, excuse me. As a reporter, I seek answers to the questions that haunt me. But the stories, the real stories. You won't find printed in any newspaper. 
stories of strange deaths, endless suffering, horrors we can only pretend to explain. And these are the stories I live to write, driven by the faith that one day people will read them and understand. Haunted by the fear that the answers I seek lie not in the darkness without, but the darkness within. Thank you.